Hello everyone, how are you? Um, what I want to do at the top of the show this week is is do something that I ask my listeners to do all the time, is, is to, to share around the content. And I have a couple of podcasts that I want to recommend. And I want to do this because, well, A, I can't, I only support a few of them um, on Patreon. And I want to kind of just spread the love because I think each of them offers something completely different, but are so worthy of a listen. So I just really wanted to give the listeners to this podcast good recommendations to other other things that are happening out there. Uh, the first one I want to chat about is one you may have um, come across already via us, or you may have known about it beforehand. But anyhow, we interviewed uh, Shannon Heaton a good few months ago now. Shannon has a podcast called the Irish Music Stories Podcast, and it's a brilliant podcast. So Shannon looks at music and then looks at the bigger stories behind it, as she says. So she'll take kind of a, a bigger topic and really unpick that topic using the lens of Irish music to, to maybe have a look at it in a different way. So absolutely worth having a look at that. Um, other one I recommend is Tell Me a Story with Eddie Lennon. Um, Eddie is a Shanaki and every, I'm, I'm not sure how frequently they put out their episodes, but anyway, he'll, again, each week will be kind of usually themed to what's happening at the time. So, um, a couple of weeks ago it was around St. Bridget and there was ones for Halloween, there's ones for, um, I think maybe for St. Stephen's Day, um, fantastic podcast. So go check that out as well. Um, who else? I've mentioned this one on here too, and I think oh, this is one of my favourites. I I just really I just love this podcast. Is uh, Fire Draw Near? So if you haven't heard of Fire Draw Near, Fire Draw Near is produced by Ian Lynch of Lancome, and ah, oh, I could just say pretty great podcast. I think not not just in part because of who Ian is and the kind of the attitude he brings to the podcast, but his approach is really unique as well. And I just, I love that real deep dive nature. Like you, you need to be a certain kind of personality to be able to delve deep into a subject and still make it feel really, really interesting to anyone that's listening to it. And Ian does a bloody brilliant job of that. So he, he's, he's got a once a month episode that comes out, which anyone can listen to. And that's always different. And then he has ones which are for patrons only. And sometimes it will look at a genre. So the most recent one is looking at Irish ballads. But then other times he'll do a deep dive into like a particular song. So at the minute there's a full um, deep dive into the Wild Rover song. And that like that's a three-parter. It's just bloody brilliant listening. So Fire Draw Near is the name of that. I'd absolutely recommend you head over to that one too. Um, oh, Blind Boy I've mentioned a few times on here if you're a listener to um, to podcasts or if you're someone who's overseas Blind Boy I mentioned maybe two weeks ago at the intro he is uh, he's from Limerick uh, he used to be part of a maybe still is part of a band called Rubber Bandits he kind of waxes lyrical for an hour or two hours has hot takes on different subjects very informative has amazing insights on mental health so blind boy over the last two years has given me 
so much help in in regards to mental health something that i kind of uh, i take notice of and try and practice anyway but he does a great job of of making it making it top of mind as well so absolutely check that out blind boy podcast or blind boy yeah blind boy podcast is what it's called check that out and then i suppose i'll I'll do one more which is a bit of a, a strange kind of off to the side one i've mentioned it once or twice around here as well but anyone that is actually interested in american old-time music because I mention it so often on here. I'm sure there's a few other people who are exposed to it or know a little about it or would like to know a lot more about it. There is a podcast called Get Up in the Cool. Um, again, another brilliant podcast. Uh, a lot of it, part of the inspiration for this podcast came from Get Up in the Cool. Uh, so, produced by a guy called Cameron DeWitt, who sits down with different players within the the old time scene and has long format tunes and he plays a tune with them as, as they go so kind of similar to this podcast except Cameron would actually play banjo with his guests every week um and again it's not it's probably i would liken it to, to this podcast in that it doesn't just follow the the normal typical routes that traditional media would do in their interviews he kind of he goes off script and um, it's very relaxed and you kind of get into some interesting areas in there. So that's called Get Up in the Cool, that anyone that's interested in learning a little bit more about American all-time music should get interested in that one. Right, and then, yeah, so look, the, the reason I'm doing it is every week I ask for new patrons to come on and support and uh, I've had two new ones come across this week, which is brilliant. So thanks so much, Enda and Katarina. That's probably brilliant of you. You're, you're absolute saints. Um, anyone else that would like to become a patron it's always the same place like I'm very aware that fatigue sets in because I end up saying the same thing week in week out but really people come and people go all the time so I have to keep mentioning it to make sure that some money comes in so if you want to chip in the way it works is I use a system called Patreon and Patreon is a website and it allows you to set an amount that you'd like to chip in for every time that the content creator post something so let's say you said you know what darren two dollars an episode i think that's brilliant for having you know an hour or two hours of content here you go thanks for thanks for your work that is um you do that on patreon and then at the end of each month depending on how many episodes so for uh, the blarney pilgrims podcast it's once a week so that's then charged to you once a month and that system is the the system that myself and Don sat out on nearly two years ago now. And we always wanted to, this podcast to be available for free to as many people as possible. And the only way we can do that is to have a small percentage of people be the ones that chip in and are our patrons. You know, the it's based off the the old, old style of having patrons. You had wealthy families that could pay artists to create and really that's what the system has been democratized and now we're asking for many many people just to pay a tiny bit and then that means that we can go out there and create these kinds of content so yeah if you want to do that head over to patreon.com forward slash balani pilgrims uh, as i said we do want this podcast to be freely available for as many people as possible so do share it about um I'm sorry it's taken so long for me to recommend those podcasts because I get so much from from each of them. And as I said, 
I totally understand you can't always um, pay for everything you listen to. And, you know, some, some podcasts have ads in the middle to, to subsidize that. Um, that's a choice we've decided not to do. We'd rather have a full uninterrupted podcast where you can really just kind of get lost in the conversation and not have to stop midway through. Um, so yeah, if you get value from these podcasts, uh, there's usually about six, seven, eight hours a month that's released. And if you get a lot from it, please chip in, chip in a small amount. It all uh, helps. Uh, and again, that's patreon.com forward slash Baloney Pilgrims. Right. Today's guest is yet another guest that we tried to uh, set up an interview with a long, long time ago. In fact, on the the launch weekend of the podcast, we were lucky enough to launch down at the Celtic um, Music Festival in Port Arlington. And that ta- at that time, we actually were lucky enough to catch up with um, Mary McNamara and Arlene O'Brien. And there was a third person on our list to have a, in, in the room that night. It was supposed to be three, tr- three ladies in the room on us that night. But for one reason or another, it never happened. So I was delighted to be able to get to sit down with Angela Usher this week because, yeah, it's nearly been two years in the making and I've been very interested to hear about Angela's story. It's actually quite nice that we got to maybe sit down one-on-one. I think we probably got to know a lot more about Angela than we would have if, we, if there had been three people in a room. Um, so, yeah, look, I think I've done enough blabbering up front. Uh, let's get into the chat and I'll chat to you at the other end. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Sure. Welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Hi Darren, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on. Doing very good. Yeah, thanks for coming on. What did we just hear? Uh, that was a set of jigs that I played there for you. Uh, the first one was called Port Cullen, uh, which is a jig I heard many years ago, uh, Billy McCumpsky playing that. Um, it's been recorded um, in the 90s by Fisher Street. But it's a tune that I just found interesting because it has um, a strange link up between when you do the repeats on the second part. So it's always been one of my favourites on banjo. And then went into uh, the Munster Buttermilk, which I play in D. A lot of people would play that in G maybe. And then finished off with uh, Bobby Casey's jig. I'm going to ask something really technical because I love when I hear something that I re- I, I, I could easily gloss over and pretend like I understand, but I don't. When you when you say it has nice couple-ups on the banjo, what what do you mean by that? Is that something you can explain or...? or? Sorry, what did you say then? What was the question? <laughs> uh, in in the first tune, yeah, you said you liked it particularly because there was a couple of um, you call it. I think you call it. You call them couple ups, and I was saying it's one of those things I could let slide by and pretend like I understand what you're talking about, but I don't. So, uh, can you explain what that is? Yeah, it's just the end of the second part. Um, it kind of just has like an extra bar, so it kind of for me it goes a little bit out of sync. Um, until you come yeah. to the end of the second part again, where it all kind of comes back together. So I just always found that interesting. Is that what you would call like a crooked tune? Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I've not heard it called that, but yeah, that, that'd be a good a, a good name for it. Well, I know. So my um, my another musical interest that I have is American old time music. Right. Yeah. Lovely. And there's a lot of kind of crooked tunes in that. Yeah. Which, as tunes that don't are not necessarily made for dancing they're just kind of they came from a different tradition exactly does that make sense yeah because i did come from a dancing background so probably automatically without realizing it, every tune i hear i'm making sense of it you know like that it all kind of adds up that type of thing so that's probably why this tune stuck with me because when i first heard it i was like oh where's that going you know so you you started out dancing is that right that's right, yeah. Um, my grandfather was from Peterswell in Galway and he came over to Manchester and had his family over here. Um, he was a step dancer and so my aunties, his daughters, he had four daughters and a son, they all danced um, but it was his daughters who set up the Lally School of Irish Dancing in Manchester which ran for over 50 years. Um, they've only just recently retired really, my, my aunties. So I started dancing, I think it was the age of three when I first went to class. Yeah, so... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and with the it, it set dancing, so I can tell the difference, is that, was that, what type of dancing is that? Is that like the tradition, when I think of it, with the like, with the traditional dresses and the like hair and curls, that kind of dancing? Or is it more um, like the, the sets of four or eight? Ah, right. No, so it'd be the step dancing where you do the solo dancing, just like you're saying now with the costumes and... All the the glamour that goes along with that, <laughs> the wigs. Uh, so my yeah. yeah, my granddad would have been a solo step dancer, 
Um, he still did um, the sets of four and the eight hands and things like that, you know, but he didn't do the as much the set dancing, which you'd see a lot of in Ireland nowadays. And it wasn't the Shannon style, it was uh, the actual step dancing that he did. Right. And then you as a, as a child, were you, were you, did you have a general, a, a genuine interest in it or was, were you kind of just doing it because it was one of the things that, you know, mum and dad wanted us to do so we did it? Yeah, well, it's funny because I don't remember it at all, but I wouldn't have been at school at the age of three, you know, I would have still been at home. I wasn't in nursery or anything like that. And my elder sister and brother were going to classes and I wasn't. But my mum said I used to every day get my little dancing bag ready and say, am I going to dancing tonight? And you used to be sat on the stairs waiting. Yeah. <laughs> she used to say, no, it's not tonight, until eventually I must have been allowed to go. So I don't remember any of that, but I was obviously really keen, yeah. And then when did, when did um, actually picking up an instrument come into it? Yeah, well, in primary school, I did play guitar. That was great. We had a lovely teacher there, um, and it was all mainly chords, you know, and singing and folky stuff and things like that. Um, and my older sister played the guitar as well. So that's all I'd done probably up to about the age of nine. Um, but then we were dancing at a, an Irish event in Manchester and these children um, played during the break. You know, it must have been the local, local cultist branch that got up on the stage. We were doing the dancing, they did the music. And so just at the end, my parents went over and asked them where they learnt music. And uh, they were from St Wilfred's cultist branch in Hume. So we asked about the lessons and I... I went down on my older sister as well and I started on the tin whistle there so that was the start you know it was probably about nine at the time I think yeah I I, I do remember um we were talking to Michael Walsh a few weeks ago ah, yeah. and uh he had mentioned that that's where he that's where you met each other right that's right yeah I mean so you used to go in on a Saturday morning and just have one-to-one -one lessons really Marion Egan or Marion Flannery she was called in those days was the whistle teacher and just from her first lesson, absolutely was mesmerised by her fingers, you know, just the way she was playing. And um, I was on a little G whistle at the time because we just had one tin whistle in the house and it was a little tiny one. So I felt a bit a bit silly on the first lesson. Everyone else had these D whistles. But anyway, on the way home, we went to the music shop and got some D whistles. Um, but So I would have seen Mike, but not really known him um, until we went to a music lesson. It was probably a band practice then when I was about 11 and noticed they have the same school tie as our school. <laughs> and I was like, ooh, he's, yeah, right. he's in my school. And that's when we really got to know each other then. So it was at a different primary school to me. Um, but yeah, we were at St. Wilfred's and been lifelong friends ever since. With with Marion, what was it about her, or what is it about her that make, makes her a great teacher? Uh, well, she was just lovely. Uh, she had a great personality. She was lots of fun with us. Um, really patient. And I just loved the lessons from the first day I went. I'd still remember coming home and having a book. My first, my first tune was Roddy McCauley. And I kept running into the kitchen and asking my mum, how does it go again? Because I had the notes in front of me, but it was just a big, long line of notes. So I couldn't really make... I was playing the notes, but I, couldn't have the, I didn't have the tune in my head, you know. And I kept running in and she'd sing it to me. And I'd go, all right, and I'd go back. And by the time I went back the week after, you know, I would have had it off without the notes. Because I just didn't put it down, really, for that whole week. And it was the same... I used to sit with my book and practice every single tune. Mike always said I was the swat of the class, but um, well, I just he may have, he may have mentioned that when he was chatting to us too. He said <laughs> the difference between you and him was you practiced. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I was the swat of the class in school, but I probably was at music. Um, but yeah, I just loved it. And then it was 
Sorry, Angela, go ahead. No, just say from from the first day that I can remember it so well. Um, but it was just just changed my life, really. You know, at such a young age. And uh, was it like a once a week uh, a where you would go and you were being taught with a full class full of people, or did it, once you started to kind of progress a bit, was it just kind of one on one? How was it? What shape did it take? Yeah. So when you first started off, it would have been one on one. So, and I can understand that, you know, it's just, you sort of, I left me marry and she'd show you the notes, give you the music, off you'd go. Um, and eventually then I would have gone into a group, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and then if you, as you started to progress, you were invited then to come on a Tuesday evening as well. So it would have been going twice a week. And it was, I probably did pick it up fairly quickly, you know, because I do a lot of teaching now. So if somebody came back to me after the first week and they'd learnt the tune off by heart, you know, you'd think, wow, great, you know, great within a week. So I think fairly quickly we were put into bands and things like that. Um, and you were always encouraged to try different instruments, you know, like you were waiting for your lessons. So there'd be lots of different families hanging around. Um, there were lots of different instruments there. And you could just go around and have a, you know, try somebody's instrument out. And you might be putting a band for, for an instrument you couldn't even play, really. But you'd just pick it up, yeah. you know. And you'd, just, you'd be encouraged to do that, which was brilliant, you know. Was it a big school? Yeah, I mean... Can't remember the numbers really, but I would say probably at least forty children, fifty children, something like that. You know, yeah, wow. lots of yeah. probably families where you, you might have had three or four, five from each family, and they were all playing. So, yeah, it was great. So I don't really know Manchester that well either. So Hume is that is that like a suburb, like in in the city, or is that outside quite out a bit? Yeah, it's it's just outside. The Manchester City Centre. There's like there's like a ring road now that goes around Manchester City Centre, and that would be the first place that you would come to if you're going southwest. Um, but in those days, Hume was very very um, run down. It's a very poor area, and there was loads, you know, lots of blocks of flats and things like that. And this was just Saint Wilfrid's was a little uh, church and social club, which was right in the middle of an estate. Um, but I think probably why it was there was the, the priest was a, a man called Father Morrow who played the button accordion and had a great interest in the music. Um, so he was always in and out, you know, chatting to everybody and listening. Uh, his favourite tune was the Sally Gardens. And I, st- I still see him today. He still comes to listen when we're doing gigs oh, wow. in Manchester. Yeah, he's, he's probably about 85 now. Um, yeah. But maybe that's why it was based there, you know, originally. Um, I'm not too sure. And like, is that is it a because the other reason or thing I was going to ask is is it a big Irish community in that particular area? Is that one of the other reasons or not so much? No, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been in that actual area, but there just happened to be that social club, um, and there was there was loads of them. You know, when we were growing up, probably every Catholic church had a social club attached to it, and they would have had Irish nights on. You know, they were just all over the city. Yeah. But there wouldn't have been a big Irish community in that in that particular place in Manchester. Yeah. Okay. So, were, were you were your were your family based near there? Um, no, we were out in Stockport. So, I was born into a family of nine children. So, uh, myself and my sister, were, my elder sister, were the first ones to go to music. But gradually, we all started going. You know. Um, so, I remember on a Tuesday night, my mum used to take the younger end of the family. Whilst we were supposed to be doing our homework, she'd set off for St. Wilfrid's with them. Um, and she'd take probably four of them down, I think. 
uh, drop them off for the lessons, come back for us, pick us up, take us to St Wilfrid's. By that time, they should be finished. She'd take them home and then she'd come back again and wait for us to finish. Uh, and these, the lessons used to go on until about half 11 or early at night. And uh, Wow. Yeah, we'd get home about midnight. My, da- my dad was a headmaster, so... <laughs> Uh, a deputy head, sorry. And um, we used to be like creeping into the house at midnight on a Tuesday night. Because <laughs> he, he was going mad about what time we were coming in. But it was all part of the fun, you know. Were, um, were mum and dad very musical? Well, my, dad's, my dad played the piano. Um, but he played classical music. Um, his brother, though, was a really good violinist. Um, and he was the head of music at a, a college a boarding school out in uh, Blackburn called Stonyhurst College. Uh, so came from a very, you know, there's lots of music in their side of the family, but not Irish music, because both my parents were born in Manchester, you know. It was my granddad mm-hmm. and my grandma who were the who were born in Ireland. Uh, my mum didn't really get the chance to do much music. She played the recorder at school, and apparently she, she told me that she was taken to the headmistress one day because she was so good on it. Um, and that she'd learn these tunes without the music and all this type of thing. So I bet she would have been really good, my mum, but she just never really yeah. got the opportunity, you know. Uh, are mum and dad still with us? They are, yeah. Um, they're, survi- yeah. they're surviving lockdown. Um, my dad will be 80 in May and my mum will be 79 in May. Um, and are you, are you still close? And, are you nearby them? Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm in the city oh. centre here in Manchester now, so it's only it's about six miles to their house, but... All, most of my family, seven of us are still in, around Manchester. Um, some of them only about 100 yards from mum and dad's house. And I've got one sister living in Drummerhair in Leitrim. And I've got another brother who's living down in London. But the other seven are all based up here. That must be so nice at the moment with, yeah. with everything that's going on. Ah, oh, it is, yeah, that we're all still close to each other. Yeah, and it's great yeah. for them that they can have visits to the doorstep anyway and we can drop things off for them and look after them. But um, you've, a, you've a daughter in Australia at the minute, right? Just that, speaking of that. That's right, yeah. So um, Alicia, my eldest daughter, went out to Australia uh, three years ago. She went with my other daughter, Grania. They both went off together, travelling. But my other daughter only made it out there for about two weeks and had an accident um, where she oh, no. really damaged her foot. So I had to fly out to Phuket and fly her back. <laughs> Uh, she had an operation in Phuket and then she had more treatment when she got back to Manchester. Yeah, but she's fully recovered now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so she didn't, she didn't last that long, but Alicia's, Alicia's loving um, Sydney. She's really enjoying herself there, so I don't know when we'll get to see her. You know, it's tricky, isn't it, in these times? Well, that's it, yeah. We'll need to get you out here again when, uh, <laughs> when lockdown happens, because we, we were supposed to have a, uh, a chat in That's the right. first weekend of this podcast. So that was actually the weekend that we launched the podcast when we tried to catch up at that time and um, for whatever reason. But um, what, what that, that tour, was that, did that coincide with your kids coming out here too? Yeah, that was great because um, when Alicia and Granny first went out, that was in the February of, it would have been 2018, I think. Yeah, it would have been 2018. And I booked my summer holidays because I, I teach in school, so I get six weeks off, which is brilliant. Um, and I went I went over to see her again then in that summer. And then the following year, I was invited out um, to the festivals in New Zealand and then in Melbourne. So it was fantastic because I got to see her again then the year after, you know, um, which is when I think you 
we were supposed to catch up. You managed to do an interview with Eileen O'Brien and Mary. Yeah, Mary at Mack. the um, yeah the um, the Celtic Festival, the National Celtic That's Festival right. in Port Arlington, which is a great festival. Brilliant, but did yeah. you um, did you get to have much downtime when you were in Australia and New Zealand? We did, you know, because um, when I went to New Zealand first of all, um, it, that the, the actual festival it was lovely. It was just teaching in the morning, really, for probably two and a half hours, something like that. And then we'd have lunch and I'd go off with Eileen and Mary. And sometimes in the afternoon we might have had something to do or other, it might have been like that we'd just do a session that evening and we might be positioned yeah. at different ones, you know. Um, afterwards, I I decided to stay on in New Zealand and do a couple of gigs and to um, just hire a car and, and drove around and did a bit of exploring. And hooked up with Teresa, who was one of the pupils who was playing mandolin in my group. And she was lovely. She took me to see Charlie Montgomery, uh, the fiddle player out in Auckland, I think he's based. Do you know Charlie? Right. I don't know. Don't you know? He's from Fermanagh, um, but he's been living in Australia, uh, living there in New Zealand for many, many years, probably 40, 50 years, something like that. And I had right. tunes with him in the house and he's written lots of compositions and, oh, it's just... It was fantastic, you know, and he's he's got a book of compositions that he gave to me. Um, so I had lovely times like that, and then I went off on my own for a couple of nights um, before flying over to Melbourne, which is where I met up with Alicia and met up with the girls again, and we went to the National Celtic Festival then. Um, and, yeah, that was it was quite varied, so we had some master classes to do, we had some workshops, we had quite a lot of gigs that were in the different tents and things like that. Um, I mean, it's, we ended up playing in a wine bar each night, which was lovely. Uh, met up with Maggie. Yeah, Carr. I was stood outside the window looking at you. One oh, night. were you? <laughs> uh. Yeah, uh, myself and Dom. I forget what we we're doing. Anyway, we tried to. We we're we think, oh, let's go in here. But then we tried to actually make our way in, and it was full to the door. Uh, That's a good sign. Yeah, oh, it was brilliant. Yeah, it's great, great bar that. And we met up with Maggie Carty over there as well. So we had one night playing, and she was singing and everything. It was great. Um, yeah, really, really lovely. And I flew back. I think I landed at seven in Manchester and I was in work that day. <laughs> so I had to oh, wow. quickly get home and shower and then straight into work. And it's rough going that way too. Yeah. I was all right though, you know, just I was teaching and then had an early night and was okay by the day after it. Got over it. <laughs> uh, and do you think we could um, we could have a tune or a set of tunes? Yeah, definitely. So... I think I'll do a whistle set next. Um, these are tunes that I learnt from Marion Egan back in the day. Um, the coal mine and the coal miners is the first one, and this is still a tune that I teach an awful lot in Manchester. I find that when I give the children their first roll, the G roll, uh, this is a nice tune for them, and it's one of the you know one of the tunes Marion taught me. Then I'm going to do Patsy Tuies and then into Finbard Wires Reel, which is another tune that I got from Marion. So here we go. Thanks, Angela.
Well, thank you, Angela. You're welcome. Um, so for for me, I, I knew you first through being a, a being a banjo player, and then like so far, we've only spoke about you learning the whistle. When did the banjo make its way in? Yeah, so um, I learned the banjo at Saint Wilfrid's again at the Colters branch. Um, I was thinking about this last night, you know, because you start thinking back about before you do before you do something like this, you start thinking about everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and really, like, like I was saying before, when families would be sat around waiting for the lessons and there's instruments everywhere, there was um, some neighbours of my grandparents who were called the Grady's and they had a daughter called Margaret and she had a banjo. And so I must have been asking her, could I uh, have a, a go on it, you know, and see what I could make of it. And so I used to pick that up every week and no one showed me anything on it. I was just sat messing around. But I remember being really proud of myself because I'd worked out a tune Um but it was only on the D string. <laughs> so yeah. I was up and down the fret, you know, I was probably on, on like the 15th fret or something playing this tune. Um, but I'd managed to work it all out, but I didn't appreciate that you could go onto the next, you know, onto the next string. So it was quite funny, really. Um, but I've obviously had an interest in it. Um, and Tony Sullivan, so you've probably heard of Sully, who's written a lot of tunes that mm-hmm. people still play. Um, he was the banjo teacher. So I signed up for some lessons with Sully. Um, I don't think I had that many with him. Um, um, I don't know whether he laughed or cr- I can't really remember the circumstances, but I must have moved then on to Bobby Tracy, who was another fiddle teacher, and he started showing me tunes on the banjo. So I just learnt by tab with the numbers. Um, yeah. Yeah, just my mum then went and got me a banjo, you know, and got into it. I was probably, I don't know, probably 30, 12 or 13, something like that at that age. I'd also done Do you remember your first banjo? I remember, yeah, so I got my first banjo, actually. I've lent it to someone who's oh. down in Birmingham, uh, but he's looking after it for me. And I've still got my second banjo, which a little boy from school is playing at the moment, and that's a real short neck Barnes and Mullins one, really old. Um, and my mum told me how Marion had told her to get a short neck banjo for me, and she'd shown her one that would be suitable. And my mum used to go into town every week and pay £10 off the banjo until it was all paid off and, and we could have it. Wow. Yeah. So when you say it's it, if it's a short neck, is it is it a different scale? No, no, it's just a just a short neck uh, banjo. It's quite a funny looking one, really. I mean, I must when I go back into school now, I'll send you a picture of it. But I think the machine yeah, heads broke. The machine heads broke at some point. My dad, my dad fixed it. He's great at fixing things. So it's got these <laughs> silver, like quite bright silver machine heads on the top. I think they're probably supposed to be for a guitar, really. Uh, but it's still got those on it, and it had to have a new skin. Um, but it's actually great for the young ones learning, you know. It's nice to hold on to them. When you picked up the banjo, how, how long was it before you um, you got involved with the band, the, the Cora? Yeah, I mean, it was probably about 15, something like that, when I started playing with Cora, 15, 16. Um, so that was Sean Wood and Martin Colt, two singers who were based out near Glossop, and they sort of sang in a duo um and then Eamon O'Neill was a school teacher who used to teach at our school um he played piano and played piano accordion and he'd been great um because I had my lessons but you know at the Colters branch but Eamon used to come and show us the piano and show us how to do the accompaniment and the vamping and all that sort of stuff um so that gives you a good knowledge of the chords um and then we were joined by my my elder sister Caroline played the fiddle so she was in Curragh And my younger brother, Paul, 
was on the drums and then a guy called Mick Coleman um was on bass guitar. Um so yeah that's... So was the band was the band already together when you joined or were you like did you kind of form it together? No, yeah, we formed it together. So Martin and Sean would have been singing together in a duo and then we kind of had a little bit of a Kaylee band with Eamon. We used to do um we're more like a yeah, just like hoedowns, that type of thing. You know, Eamon would be the caller and we'd play. <laughs> it's just a four yeah. piece. I think I think poor my brother only had a snare, that was it. He didn't have anything else. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he didn't even have the bass and drum. He just used to sit on the snare and play. It's really funny when you look back. Were, like what were you getting many gigs? Like what 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 were you doing? Like were you getting up on stage much? Yeah, we were. I mean with that band we probably got loads of school gigs, you know, like the PTAs. I don't like the parent teacher yeah, associations, because yeah. Eamon was a teacher. And he said the band was so small that if they used, we used to turn up to some of them and they had this big stage in the school hall. And so he said they used to draw the curtains so that <laughs> it didn't look too big. <laughs> we just, yeah. just four of us sat there. And uh, oh, I don't know what sort of a PA we had or anything, but we got through it anyway. It was probably great, you know, just having that experience at such a young age. I would have been doing that. I would have been playing in the Cayley bands down at St. Wilfred's. And then, you know, we started Curra, which was where we started getting gigs on the folk scene and we went over to play in Ireland and we played at Band on the Wall in Manchester and things like that, you know. Did you ever record with the Curra? Yeah, we did, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't... Are they, is there recordings of those around? I don't, I don't know. There must be somewhere. I mean, Sean Wood um, is a good photographer as well, so he sent me some photos because we used to do little photo shoots and stuff and we went into the studio a few times. Um, but I must ask Sean... Um, if we've got any recordings. Yeah, but we definitely did yeah, record. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, we kind of based ourselves on Stockton's wing, really, you know, so it was, we had like the bass and drums and, yeah, had lots of nice little arrangements and things. And then what, What? Uh, how, how long was it before um, Tosta Feathers, you moved to Tosta Feathers, or did, the band, did that band kind of break up Yeah. before well, that? What happened there? Yeah, I mean, it, I was probably about 18, maybe, when I finished playing with Curra. Um, and then Toss the Feathers, I'd say, probably I was about 20, something like that. Um, I, I'd i started teaching. I mean, I mean, I worked full-time anyway, you see, from the age of 16. Um, and then I started teaching at another cultist branch in Manchester called the O'Carolins. I started teaching there from 17. So... Right. Um, like Mike McGoldrick would have come down there and the Farrells were down there, Debbie Garvey. Um, so I was, you know, people, Desi, Desi Donnelly would have been there. When these guys came along, they could already play. Like, they were great, you know. Mike was probably about 13, 14. And oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> when you said it, I thought he was coming down. Like, I thought you were in the same... Um, like he was, he was there maybe teaching or whatever. But so he's coming in as a student. Yeah, so they, I mean, they could already play. You know, you're just sort of giving them tunes and things. But mainly was there mm. probably to put them into bands and to do group of keels. So that's the type of thing that I did. You know, I did the lessons and then the big thing there was putting them in for the flowers and things like that. So I remember Mike being in like a fifteen to eighteen group of keel along with uh, the Farrells and Debbie Garvey and lo- loads of them. Um, they went on to win the All Ireland at, I don't know how old Mike would have been then, maybe 16 or 17 when he was in that. But it's the same kind of setup, you know, you'd, you'd put them on different instruments. Remember Mike, Mike being on the drums in one band, he'd on the button accordion in another band, uh, you know, whistle and flute. 
he even we'd, we'd stay behind after music, you know, and we'd be messing around and playing the piano and doing Irish dancing and all sorts of things. <laughs> me, me, it's Mike. Such and, a healthy atmosphere. I look like yeah. It's it's nothing like I never really kind of got exposed to it because I never. Well, I was, I was never in those environments, but it, to be in it, it just sounds so... Like, you're not the first person to talk about these kind of setups where there's, you know, there's multiple kids, multiple instruments, and you just... Like, you're hanging out with your mates, and you're, you're, you're trying new things. That's it. And to be creative and to, to push each other, to push, like, to... Because uh, I think maybe with the Kyoto's too, because there's a bit of a competition element. Yeah, yeah. There's a, well, that's there's a-, a healthy pushing... Yeah. Of of boundaries too. You kind of like you want to be a bit better. And you know you know there's there's it's not not grades, but there's a, there's marks you're trying to get above the whole time. That's right. I mean they have the competitions for the solos and duets and things, but in them days as well, you could um, you could you could put in like five under under eleven bands. They probably would have been in them, in them days. So you could be you'd have your A band, your B band, your C band. You know they'd all be playing against each other, but you could be on different instruments yeah. in every band. So in the A band, Mike might have been on the flute. Then he might have been on the drums in the next band. Then he might have been on the button accordion in the next band, you know. And it was the same when we were growing up. That's what happened. And that's why he tried out all these different instruments, which was great. I had no idea that that's how it worked. Either. I, was, I, only, I saw it for the first time. Um, I was in Drogheda for the FLA in like, what would have been 2018, maybe. Maybe 2017. Yeah. Anyway. The long and short of it is, oh no, eighteen. I think it would have been after Euro here, but I, I was going home and I went into a pub. And do do you know um, Elaine O'Sullivan from? Um, oh, where's she from? Um, the Armagh. So she's up in Armagh. Anyway, she had, she has the traditional arts partnership up there. Right. Okay. No. And long story short, is I went into the pub and it was I was like the pub was packed, but it was mostly kids. Yeah. I was going. This is this is like this is great, and they're all playing. But then I noticed like these kids are actually just they're, they're swapping their instruments <laughs> halfway through the tunes, yeah. and like there was, yeah, got, like and going from like I knew it enough at that stage where I understood that maybe there's a bit of a crossover between banjos and yeah. mandolins and, and yeah, fiddles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you're talking about, like it's concertina for a whistle for a baron <laughs> for, and I'm going, you're kidding. And then it was that moment of going, of course, like if you're in a any kind of club. If you want, if you want to be a better sports person, and you hang out with other yeah. people who are into sport. Like you're constantly chipping away, and, and I don't know what the. It's like an apprenticeship through your peers, and it, that's yeah. that's where it spurs you on. Yeah, and it's lovely because you you were able to just try out different instruments, you know, and I always encourage that because you know a child could pick an instrument and they just they just don't gel with it or they just don't like it, you know, but then they could go on to something else and they could be absolutely amazing. It doesn't mean to say they're not musical or whatever, they, you know, so I just think try out lots of different instruments whilst you're younger and see what sticks, you know, see what you enjoy. Yeah, I, I'm struggling with my um, with my lads with that too because like that one's on drums and one's on, on piano. Yeah. And like I, I know that the reason why they're not, loving it as much is because they're not playing with other people right and like the last year was obviously the, the last year so yeah they weren't playing with anyone their lessons were they weren't face to face they're not playing with anyone at all they're not they're, they're just there's no yeah. they don't want to play with dad because that's 
boring. Yeah. Like, so yeah. I just kind of I feel for them. I'm kind of I'm thinking like, I need to maybe find something that's a bit a bit more like what you're what you're Social. mentioning like a music school. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if it was just I just lived for going down to my to my music lessons on a Saturday and Tuesday, but it's just because all your friends were down there. It was great, you know. And even when I started teaching, you know, it was it was just. No, oh, it's just great. All the different families that come together and the parents are really enjoying it, you know, because they've got their own little groups there. It's great socially for them. And then all the, the kids are running off together, you know. When um when when you joined Toss the Feathers, like for me reading about it, it seems like that was a, a marked kind of um a remarked kind of um it was a much more full on uh, like a, a professional band. Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, it did I mean we started off quite small, really, where we were just doing um, pub gigs that were mainly trad, you know, um, and it just kind of grew from there. So because we were listening to bands, you know, like Moving Hearts and Stockton's Wing with the the bass and the drums, like I was saying before, and kind of went down that route and it just grew very, very quickly. So before we knew it, we just had there were so many clubs in Manchester at that time that everyone was booking us, you know. Um, yeah. And we were we were playing. I mean, we would, used to do Thursday night, Friday night. Um, we were then going down to London. Um, sorry, we used to do a Friday night in London, Saturday in London, come back up, do a Sunday lunch, Sunday, Sunday night and Monday night in Manchester. So it was really full on. We used to rehearse on a Wednesday. And I think I still used to teach music on a Tuesday night. And then... <sighs> I'm working full time as well through it. <laughs> yeah, I, w- did you love it? Like, was it? Yeah. In the early stage, like, it, well, throughout it. Yeah. It's was it a positive experience? Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's just the reaction from the crowd. We had like a real following. You know, there was just oh, it was, it was just fantastic. People coming from all over the place. Um, just loads of young ones as well. Um, just a great atmosphere. Just a big buzz. You know, I, I was probably. We tossed the feathers from beginning to end, probably for about two and a half years. Um, but then when the, the bigger tour started coming up for Europe and then they were doing a CD and they were going out to America, I had to call it a day because I still had this full-time job. Um, so I had to just mm-hmm. make make a call, really, um, and went with the work. Yeah, I had, a, mor- had a, a mortgage and things like that by then, so... Was that was that tough? It, it was, and you know what was really tough was... <laughs> adapting to uh, trying to go to bed at a normal hour. I used to be awake at, <laughs> I used to be awake at three in the morning, just like couldn't get to sleep because I was so used to having probably really little sleep, you know. Um, but yeah, it was tough. My, br- my brother was in the band as well. He was the drummer in Toss the Feathers. Uh, so he stuck with them for a long time. Um, but yeah, we had, we had great days. But they obviously went on then to do lots of recordings and play all over the place you know but you're on you, you played on some of the recording like you, you played on the, the yeah on the 32 and did you play on the, on the on the other album the um name slips me now the their first album the columbus eclipse one yeah yeah so there's some tracks there that we'd done in the studio so the crack was 90 was one of them uh grogan's was another one so i was on them um and i was on the live at the 32 uh tape i think it was that we did in them days yeah I was well. I wasn't around, and I probably wouldn't have been paying attention anyway. But that kind of Celtic rock thing that 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 was that was it's huge, and like all those bands you mentioned, yeah, was that 
was that a was that just like a really big thing through up and down England or did you take the band to Ireland as well? Um, I didn't go with Toss of Feathers to Ireland, but they did. They did go, yeah. Um, and at, in Manchester, particularly, quite a few bands using that style of music um, started coming up as well. You know, there's another band called Rattle and Reel. Uh, there's a few different ones. So there just seemed to be a surge at that time. But yeah, like I know you're not going to have a definite answer, but like if you had to take a stab in the dark, like what what were some of the ingredients that made that style so popular at the time? Um, well, maybe a lot of people, you know, that were following us hadn't maybe hadn't heard uh, that that you know the the fusion of the rock sort of background with the trad, um, and I suppose. Even Eddie was the singer, Eddie Sheehan, and did a lot of well-known songs, but probably just did quite nice arrangements to them and things like that, you know. Um, it just mm. seemed to work. Um, do you think we could have another tune or a set of tunes? Yeah, I can do, yeah. Um, so I was going to use my tenor guitar um, next. Um, I've got this lovely tenor guitar that was made by a man in Manchester called David Lim, who's a piper. Um, but he makes lots of instruments and he's also making pipes as well now. So I'm going to use the tenor guitar for this next track. I'm going to play a tune called Flatwater Fram, which I'm sure you know, which is a composition by Phil Cunningham, um, which I first heard on the Transatlantic Sessions and I just think it's a gorgeous tune. Um, And then, not that this tune really goes with it for the set, but just it runs in quite nice on tenor, is a little slip jig called the... Little Fair Canavans, which originates from Connemara, which was actually a song that was written in Slipjig time. So I'm going to play these two for you. Lovely. Thank you, Angela.
brilliant. I, I love the sound of the tenor guitar and I, I don't hear it that often. That's right. It's yeah. a, um, John Carty played one on a tenor guitar. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the tune. But it's such a, yeah, I, I, I am surprised it's not more common. That's it, yeah. Um, John's got some lovely tenor guitar stuff, especially on the latest album, The Wavy Bow. Um, mm-hmm. Some really lovely tunes on that. Yeah, it sounds great. So sweet. Uh, but he's just the master at doing all the the chords, you know, to fit in with the the notes. It's like I always say, he, he accompanies himself, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I think like, Maggie has that. Like, of, of when uh, when Maggie playing, you mentioned. I know you mentioned Maggie Carty when you were over here yeah. touring and you played together. But so I see Maggie play around a bit, and I, I like her style of playing too. But he, she has that kind of yeah. self accompaniment, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a American all time yeah. banjo player, so I love that accom- self accompanying sound. And you, that's another sound you don't hear very very often. No, and it's gorgeous, particularly for this for songs as well. Oh, it's lovely, yeah. When she she sang a song there in that bar that night and um, accompanied herself on the banjo, it's, it was lovely, yeah. And she plays piano as well, Maggie. See, so she's obviously got the knowledge of the chords, but really I didn't nice. Know that. Yeah, really nice, tasty chords that she puts in. Yeah, they're lovely. Yeah. So here's a here's a, a real simpleton question to a, to a teacher: Is a slip jig? Can you explain the difference between a jig and a slip jig? Without, like, I, I know you're going to give me a time signature, but that's not going to. Yeah, it's, it's not going to get me across the line. <laughs> no, don't worry, I, I'm not a theory person. Yeah, so basically, it's in um, nines. So if you think of that tune I was playing there, it'd be a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, so it kind of, it forces that emphasis on the nine. Yeah. Well, coming back Is that in on, what's kind of happening? Coming back in on the one. So like, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Da, 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 da. You kind of have a... But for me, you see, coming from a dancing background, you'd know instantly that that's a slip jig. So that's like a little advantage that you have, you know, as opposed to just being a jig. It's actually, that's the, the way that a lot of this has... Um, the penny has dropped is actually been watching dance videos. There's a listener of ours who, who sent me a, a link to a few different things and that sent me on a bit of a, a research in rabbit hole and completely because once you once you start thinking about it in dance terms, yeah. really the word slip jig or whatever it's called is really meaningless. It's because you can you can actually see it's being demonstrated. Yeah. I suppose in front of you. Yeah, and you you know your steps fit into that tune, so <laughs> So growing up in Manchester, how much time did you spend in Ireland? Um, well, when I was really young, we we didn't go over to Ireland that much, probably because there was nine of us, you know. So um, yeah. we went to Wales, which was only North Wales, you know. It's only kind of like an hour and a half away from the home. Um, we used to go camping and caravanning, all that type of thing. And then we went over to a wedding in Killarney which is the first time... Actually, I did used to go to Ireland a lot for dancing competitions, sorry, I should say that. Uh, but for, for the music, we were a bit older. 
So there was right. one, one summer we were going to a wedding in Killarney and so we decided to go to South Wales so we could cross over from Pembrokeshire. And we went down to Cork and went to Waterford, went to Killarney to a wedding. And I think at that stage, that's when my dad realised that the children could go in the pubs and he thought, this is great. <laughs> so we went to Ireland every year after that. But also we'd got to the age where we'd be qualifying in the bands and, and the flowers and things like that, you know. So we'd kind of go as a family. We went to some of the flowers in Listowel, um, and then went up to Galway, you know, to see my granddad's sister would have been up there still in Pete as well. Um, and that's when I'd spend a lot of time going into Joe Cooley's house um, and playing tunes with his brother Jack and listening to a lot of the recordings that Jack had that had been sent back from America, which was just amazing. I mean, you appreci- I appreciate it more now at this age, you know, what opportunity I had there. And he, he was lovely. Um, Jack used to let me actually take the tapes away and I'd sit with a Walkman in one hand and then like a recorder in the other hand and transfer them over, you know, so I could take them home. Um, I just used to spend days doing that. Jack played the bow on, so I, I would have gone in with my whistle probably maybe at that, in them days and played tunes with him. I, when I was reading about that, I, I was wondering, how did that come about? Like, so how, how do you end up, like, is that a family connection to the coolies or well, it's how, just, do you, how do you end up? Yeah, because my auntie's house, my auntie, uh, she was called Beezy Dooley. That was my granddad's sister, lived next door but one to Joe Cooley's house. Right. Yeah, so they were neighbours. And, you know, so they'd, they'd probably be saying, oh, my niece is coming, my great niece is coming over from England. Um, she plays music. And they they set it up for us, you know. Yeah. Do you, do you still have the tapes? No, I don't. And I don't know how many tapes would have been in that house. Oh, there's loads of them. Yeah. Yeah, it's so sad. No. So outside of um, your great aunt, did you have much family in Ireland? Um, well, I had family in Wexford as well. My grandma's from Wexford, so I had... Her nephew was there. He lived in New Ross and he only passed away probably about a year ago. Um, right. But yeah, the rest of the family were in Galway. Um, one of them so was... The, and the Galway side, is that the Usher side? No, it'd be the, my mum's side, which is the, Lally, the Lallies. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Are either of those families a, a musical family? The Lallies definitely with the dancing. Does, did that come with a musical interest as well? Yeah, I mean, they... They do, they love the music, you know, if, um, like we had a big celebration for one of my big birthdays, <laughs> uh, the good mixer came over to play at that, uh, yeah. and all the family were down, you know, oh, they just absolutely loved it. Um, and I, I'm always telling them which CDs are out, you know, and they're tuned into Radio Air and, and all this sort of stuff and listen to Kayleigh House and yeah, um, they're all into the music. My, my uncle actually, especially is my mum's brother. He's big into the set dancing and, yeah. you know, he's a big trad follower. Yeah. My Uncle Mike. And the, the Lally's win in Galway, is the Lally step dancing in Galway as well? No, there wouldn't be no. There was no classes set up there. It was all based in Manchester. Yeah. So, so do, you know, do, you know, do you know why your granddad left I don't, to go to Manchester? I don't actually know. I don't know why. And he wasn't he wasn't that young. Um I'm sure he was 
I don't know, I'd have to double check with mum, but he got married quite late. You know, I'm sure he was, in them days, I'm saying it was quite late, you know, into his 30s anyway. Maybe mm. even a bit late, you know, late 30s. Yeah. So and what, what, did, he, what did he do for a, as a, for a living? Um, he was a caretaker of a school. So one of the schools that I actually teach in now, St Cuthbert's in Withington, um, he was the caretaker there. And that's, that's where my mum and all her brothers and sisters went to school. Yeah. And did, did, like, did, did, you, did you know him well? Yeah, yeah, really well, yeah. Because they're only based, um, you know, in Fallowfield, which is a few miles from the city centre, and we were always, we were always down at theirs. Yeah, so we saw, saw a lot of them. Would he mention Ireland much or, or, or talk about life there? Um, probably not that much, you know. I suppose you wish now that you could sit down with them like this and talk about everything. My mum, my mum must have a lot more knowledge, you know, than, than I've got. Um, but I know he had a brother in America uh, and he had another brother who still lived in Ireland. He had a sister who came over with him who lived in Manchester and then his other sister, Beezy, who stayed in Peterswell for the whole of her life. Right. Yeah. And then on, on mum's side, when did they come across? No, that, that was my mum's side, yeah. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Oh, my mum's mum's. Um, sorry, then you, on your dad's side, I beg your pardon, and then your dad's side, when did they come across? Well, my, da- my dad's Gosh, side was, um, I think it was my grandma's grandma was a Don Donley, uh, sorry, Donlan, and they were from Dublin. But that's going right. back, you know, quite a long way. So probably my grandma was born in Manchester, I think, um, and then had my dad and his brother and sister. So okay, they right. were kind of like the more English side of the family, really. And then it was my, my mum's side that were the Irish side. What I, um, the reason I'm asking so much about the, the family as well, uh, on your website, I, lo- I, I found out about how the, well, the inception of the, the thought behind the, your, your album came from the, your family kind of saying, well, wouldn't it be great to maybe go in and if, if we all chipped in, we could get some studio time for Angela to, to actually record an album, which I just went, that's one of the sweetest Aww. ideas going. It's such a nice thought. So can you take us through what, what, what happened? <laughs> yeah, so because we've got such a big family when it comes to Christmas, um, we all buy presents for our nephews and nieces and things, but... With the actual brothers and sisters, we have we have a dip. So you just choose somebody and you buy them a present. Um, so, I don't know, for this particular year, they decided that my dad would have me and my sister, Anne. And they said, yeah, we're, we're going to put some money aside for you to go into the studio. And they said it was for me to just put down some of my compositions to give my dad a little CD so he could listen to it. Uh, but they said, oh, we've, we've been in touch with Mike McGoldrick and he said he'll record you. And then when I met up with Mike, he was like, well, you know you're making an album, Ange, don't you? I was like, am I? <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> he just said, um, send me the tunes that you want to do. Um, and I said straight away I'd like Matt Griffin to be accompany me on guitar because I played with Matt in Manchester a couple of times and I loved his backing. Um, and that was it, really. I mean, I think I sent the tunes to Mike and we sent them off to Matt, and it was probably over a year then before I actually got any studio time, because uh, obviously Mike's so busy. Um, mm. And probably with a couple of weeks' notice then, we just rang Matt and said, can you come over on such a day? It was like a two weeks down the line, and it was just all systems go then. So 
Um, Matt came over and got most of the backing done. I had some guide tracks put down for him. And then we kind of built it from there, really. Um, and, you know, I was working full time. Mike was touring and doing things. So every now and again, if he was home, he'd just give me a bell and say, do you fancy coming in on Tuesday or Wednesday evening, something like that? And we'd go in and just do a little bit more. And we just plugged away at it for probably over a couple of years. Um, if different musicians were in town, uh, we might get them in. So Jim Murray was here one weekend and we were in an Irish club. They'd done their gig. And Mike said, oh, should we ask Jim if he fancies doing a bit on the album in the morning? So he came in and he accompanied the song. I don't know if you've listened to Landslide, the one that yeah, yeah. Yeah, my daughter Granny sings on that. So Yeah, it's great. It's funny because I had to go in and just go home and learn the words and do the guide track for him before he got there. Yeah. <laughs> I was there with this piece of paper, like, singing along. So, uh, yeah, but he was brilliant. Like, he just got the got the guitar bits down. And, and that was it. And Mike was great because he's got lots of contacts, you know, so he sent off um, the tracks to different people to put things on. Um yeah, my um, son Connell is on it, playing the Bowron. And Michael Colt, I don't know if you know Michael, who lives in Dingle. He's no. from, from Manchester originally, a flute player. So his his dad, Michael's dad, would have played in Curra with me. Um, he did some flute and some low whistle. Colin Farrell was great. Again, we just sent the tracks over to Col, and he did them over in America, sent them back. Uh, John Carter came and played a track with me, which was amazing being like my favourite banjo player. So it was great to have yeah, on the yeah. album. And then some, you know, some of the Manchester musicians, Paul Calms on that there on guitar, and we had Sheila O'Sullivan doing some backing vocals. Um, and then when the bass and everything got added, that was just brilliant, you know. Um, Andy Stewart put the double bass down and it just, you just, you just can hear it building, you know, over time. And then Mike had sent yeah. the, tra- the tracks back to me and there's a little bit more added. So it was brilliant, yeah. So I'll I'll listen to it and like instantly there's a there's a very definite um there's a like an emotion that comes with it straight away and I I, I thought I was really impressed with just that with listening to that aspect of it and I'll tell you honestly it wasn't until today which embarrassingly that I saw the um, because I got a digital copy I only saw the sleeve notes today ah, right. where you've split out the um, each tune and the reason for them being on the album and yeah. where you got them. That just was the icing on the cake. I love that. So oh. um, for anyone that is maybe listening that has listened to the album but doesn't or hasn't read them there, so on your website you've got each one of the, the tunes and it was because I was looking for, um, I was looking for, I was looking for because uh, I really enjoyed the opening track, and I'm trying to remember the name of it. The uh, the love, the of, love Lucia. of Lucia. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and then that uh, that then ended up bringing up this page on your site, which I don't know how I'd missed the first time around. But oh my god! <laughs> so each and every tune is kind of got well. This is written for this person for that yeah. person. So that it kind of ends up feeling like a a bit of a concept album. Yeah. And then that made me think like. That that seems like a lot, like you kind of, because I, I knew it, it took a while to record everything together because of the reasons you just mentioned. Yeah. But to create a concept, or to kind of put that, to have all that energy together, sorry, not energy, but those those tunes and songs that all fit together, was how early on in the piece did you realise that this was the selection that was going to give you the album that you wanted to make? Yeah, do you know something? 
I sent the, the tunes through to Mike and we didn't really budge on them at all. It was, um, we just kind of stuck with them. Um, so I'd probably written about 12 tunes or something, I think. Um, and I'd put them into sets or, you know, put different tunes, just tunes that I liked playing, really. I thought, let's do these. Um, and we, we kind of stuck with them, you know. Uh, the, the John Carters, that was a new set. John gave me those barn dances. Um, when I was at one of the flowers, I'd have a listen to these, see what you think. So that was something mm-hmm. new. Uh, the song just came about because Grania never, ever sings. Um, she sings. She's really interested in music and she sings all the time, but she never sings in public. Um, there was one night we'd had a few drinks and I was there with my sister and she just started singing this song and I thought it was great. So I recorded it, sent it to Mike. And he said, yeah, let's do it. It's all about getting older and the kids growing up and all this. So it's quite, you know, it's appropriate. Uh, yeah, it really fit. <clears throat> yeah, it fitted, yeah. So that's how Grania ended up in there. Yeah. And then, just... you, you, so you've already kids play on it on it too, right? So your son plays Baron. Connell, yeah, Connell plays the Baron, yeah. Yeah. Um, and is it, yeah, does your already... Is there another child on there? There's James as well. Yeah, so I've got four James, children. Yeah, yeah. They've all they've all played at some point. James plays guitar. Connell plays a bit of guitar, mainly Baron. He was taught by John Joe in Manchester, so that was brilliant. Uh, great Good teacher. Great fun for him. Yeah, and Connell's been coming out with me since he was about ten, playing at sessions. There's some videos that come up on the memories, you know, on Facebook every now and again. Mm-hmm. Oh, so funny. Yeah, he's just so tiny. Um, but yeah, he, he plays Byron on it, so that's lovely. Uh, Alicia did play flute and whistle, um, but when she went to secondary school, really, she didn't really want to do it anymore. But she was really good, you know, really promising. But I don't know if she'll come back to it. And then we've got Grania, the, the secret singer, we call her. <laughs> <laughs> Not so secret anymore. Well, yeah, she's done one track, so that's the start now, Grania. We'll get you on it. So, so what what are the kids like you you you've first hand experience with your own but then with the school so what's what has covid meant for for you and and like your your own kids but then the, your kids in school and not having all of those amazing things that we just spoke about which is the camaraderie and and mateship and all that when that's taken away like where are you at, at the minute Yeah I mean at the moment uh, let's see well in schools when it all started um, I was doing some Zooms and things like that to just just the children who were in school, key workers, children, you know. But the trouble with the children being at home, they haven't got instruments. So it's quite limited what you can do. So yep. at the moment, it's it's moved on since the start, you know. At the moment, I'm going into all my schools. I'm teaching in all my normal classes, but they can't play tin whistles because they're not allowed to blow instruments. They're not allowed to sing um wow yeah so it's quite tricky they're not allowed to they're not allowed to cross bubbles so if i had children who'd signed up for guitar lessons i might have had different children from different year groups and they'd all come in and we'd have our bank of 15 guitars or something in the room and you could have one group then they go off and the next group come in they go off you can't do that anymore because they're not allowed to mix you know they're not allowed to touch the same things so you have to have like a bank of instruments for each class so I've had to be very creative and I now teach Bowron to like a group of probably 25 and that's their instruments and they stay in their classroom and teaching guitar, but then that's their bank of instruments and it stays in their room, you know, teaching ukulele mm. and teaching glockenspiels, 
<laughs> um, wow. I'm teaching anything that they can do, percussion. And then I'm doing Zooms to the children at home, but it's kind of a bit of singing because they're in their own houses, they're allowed to sing and sort of rhythm games and, yeah, clapping like different rhythm notations, just things like that, you know, just got to try and keep it going. But I, I do a Wednesday night class as well where I teach with four other teachers and that's all been on Zoom. And that's really good. Um, there's about 15 in, in my main group and they can all see each other. Um, obviously, they've got to mute when I'm playing, but they're playing along at home. But we've still done yeah. we've still done some of these videos, you know, the performances. We're just working on another one at the moment now for Easter. So, and I think they're doing really well. You know, they're, they're really progressing. It's not ideal, but I think we're, we're making it work. Um, yeah, so that's how it's been. You know, and then with Connell being... So do you do... Sorry, go on. You continue. Yeah, just saying you're asking about with Connell being at uni. He's he's back at uni, but he's not been in not been in at all, um, which is a shame because he's doing music production. So he should be in the studios uh-huh. really, and it's it's all kind of like he's he's got the laptop and he's doing some composition on the laptop. And but some of his modules now are written modules rather than being practical ones. So that's a bit of a shame. But yeah, everyone's just got to adapt yeah, really. Is it music production? Is it studio or live? He's looking at a uh, studio at the moment. Yeah. Oh well, so he's a life of being socially isolated. I know. <laughs> ahead of him. Yeah. Oh, well. The 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 good thing is though that the house is in. Um, there's a few lads off the same course, so at least they can they can work together, you know, and share ideas and things. Yeah. Um. Just going back to the the album and just with the you know, the family stuff, the other one that really stood out to me, and I love the story, is the um. Killian Steps and Kitty's Twelve Roses and uh, Goat Mile, yeah. Um, and then the, hearing the the story behind it again, like it's kind of fortuitous that I really enjoyed the album. Then read the the sleeve notes and particularly the, the tunes that I think you wrote yourself. Yeah, having that better story behind it was really nice. So the interesting thing with that was so your the Kitty's Twelve Roses that was composed for your grandma is that right that's my grandma yeah um that's my dad's mum and she lived till the age of 99 she was just over 99 and a half when she passed away uh wow. she's a brilliant woman real strong um yeah she was lovely so what i was referring to then is i remember going for a meal for her 80th and she stood up and did a speech and she talked about her 12 grandchildren and how she refers to them as a 12 roses so sweet yeah yeah uh she was she was a great lady the the goat mile being then i'm sure as many people that already know the story behind that but um there's probably a lot of listeners that that don't know it would you mind taking us through what that's about yeah so that's an event um the race, the Goat Mile, used to take place in Goat every year. So that was something that my granddad had won. Um, and that's where I came up with the title for the album. I thought I'd dedicate that really to my granddad and just going back to my roots and all those lovely times that I had in Pete as well and in Goat, you know, as a, as a teenager, uh, playing music. Yeah. yeah. It's such a nice album. So, Angela, the best place to buy the uh, record, where should I send people? Yeah, if they just go to my website, that's angelaushamusic.com and they can either order the CD or they can just um, do the download. 
is there a big difference in in how many people are buying CDs and downloads for you these days? For me, I think most people have actually still bought the CD. Yeah. Mm. I mean, for me, I, I love getting the CD in my hands. You know, I'd much rather have the CD. It's that's where I only really listen to the CDs in the car, um, but I just love having them that, on. You know. That is exactly it. Like I've only, I've only got a CD player in my car, and I, and it's funny because like in the in the studio where I am now, like I've got a lovely sound system set up. I've got a record player. I've got like, just, I, I have everything set up in here to make it as musical as possible. But I just don't own a CD player anymore. My laptop doesn't have a CD player in it. Yeah, that's right. They don't do. They can need a remote one. Yeah. Yeah. The kids like I have to go to the kids playstation if i want to watch i want to listen to it inside the house and there's no way i'm allowed to listen to music in the house so it's yeah it's all right i want to go for a drive yeah Angela, thank you so much for um taking the time out to have a chat with us oh no thank um, you darren loved it do you think we could go out on another tune or a set yeah so i'm going to play um i'll play a set of reels to finish um i'll just give jim a mention as well jim Patton, who made my lovely banjo for me um, I did want to mention that because I love the sound of his banjos. Because oh, Maggie Carty has one. That's right, yeah. And when I had a chance to sit, actually just after the interview that we did for the podcast, I feel like that is an amazing, for my tastes, they are the best banjos. Yeah, and it's um, such a shame now he's, fin- he's finished making them, Jim. So oh, no. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, they're going to be... Just after I fell in love with the sound. <laughs> I went, should I, should I start playing the tenor banjo? And then I thought, well, I'd have to get one of Jim's banjos. And then I found out he wasn't going to do it anymore. So I bought a fiddle. Oh, you bought a fiddle, did you? <laughs> <laughs> bum, bum. Yeah, no, I love... Um, I've also got an ohm as well, but um, I've settled with the JP. Um, mm. Gorgeous instrument. So I'm going to play a set of reels this time. I'm going to start with one called The Rainy Day. Um, I did a couple of years ago, I did a, a project here in Manchester, um, which was like a fusion project with klezmer music and myself and Mike and Desi, um, played on that. It's where we fused some Irish music with the Jewish tunes. Um, so this is one of the track, one of the tunes we did. And when I, when I Google it now, it actually does come up as the setting of Desi and Mike, cause they played it when they did the full set program on RTE. So... We'll start with that tune, The Rainy Day, then into a tune that is actually on my CD called My Mary Ann, um, which I learnt from the playing of Billy McCumpsky. And I'm going to finish with a lovely tune that um, I think is credited to Jason McDermott called Coleman's Cross. And I play this an awful lot in Manchester with Debbie Garvey, a great box player that I play with here in Manchester. So I'll play these three three reels with you to finish. And thanks. Angela, thank you so much. Thanks, Darren, for having me on. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that. Here we go.
Angela Osher. Thank you so much for that. And Angela, thank you so much for uh, going above and beyond. So for everyone that doesn't know, like, there's a lot of arranging that has to happen behind the scenes to make one of these podcasts. Um, hopefully you notice that the fidelity of what we do is is a bit higher than a lot of other kind of podcasts that are similar. And the only way we can achieve that is to have the guests that we're talking to really make sure that their equipment is as good as it can be and then we, we help them get that set up. And then there's a whole process of getting those files because as anyone that knows anything about audio, as soon as you get high fidelity audio, it pushes out how big the files are and you know how long these interviews can be. So we had all the regular, normal tech back and forth and then this week BT uh, decided to go down in Manchester as well. So there was just a lot of dramas and Angela... You really did go above and beyond, so thank you so much for doing that as well. Uh, and thanks for the video, which I'll be sharing with our listeners in a day or two also. Uh, just to reiterate on those podcasts that I mentioned at the top, look, I'm going to put a link to each of them in the show notes. I think that's probably the fairest way to do it, easiest way to do it, so you can just click through. But they were, from memory, going the last one to the first one. Uh, Get Up in the Cool was the old-time one. Fire Draw Near is Ian Lynch's one from Lancome. Um, Irish Music Stories by Shannon Heaton. And the other one was Tell Me a Story by Eddie Lennon. All very different, but very, very rewarding. So go and check those out. Um, if you're feeling inspired after hearing Angela's episode and you think that you want to become a full-time patron of this podcast, please head over to patreon.com forward slash baloney pilgrims all right i think that's about it look look after yourselves if you can find some piece of beauty out there in the world today like i know it's really crappy in a lot of areas and the lockdowns have got uh i've been pushed even further and in other countries and you know there's other world events just look after yourselves i've gone doesn't matter what's been happening with me just make sure you're looking after yourselves uh Try and find something beautiful. There is something there if you just look. And I'll talk to you next week. Right, go on. Good luck. Bye-bye. This project is supported by the City of Greater Geelong through its COVID-19 Arts, Culture and Heritage Recovery Grants Programme. Anya bye ya. Up.